Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful that you meet us where we are. You do not require uh, a self-cleansing or, Lord, you just require that we recognize who we are, where we are, and by your grace, you give us everything that we need for life and godliness. Today, I pray that we would see the gospel once again, that we would not only be encouraged by that truth, but transformed by it for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you guys remember, uh, this week we've been talking about the fact that our lives are incredibly messy. Our lives are complicated. Our lives contain a lot of disappointment, confusion, disillusionment, rejection. And even when we long for certain things like peace and joy and rest and comfort, so often... Seemingly around every corner and in every single day, we find things like frustration and exhaustion and guilt and sorrow. The reality is that our lives are very difficult and very messy, partially because of sin, our sin, the sins of other people, but also because we just inhabit a world that is foundationally broken by the fall. As we've talked about our lives, as we talked about our mess, we laid a few ground rules. First, we recognize that our mess is real and eternally significant. Again, just by review, our mess is not something that we're just making up in our imagination. Our mess is not something that, that just doesn't matter. Our mess is absolutely real. It is often very tangible for us. Again, it is something that we meet every day of our lives. Our mess is something that, that we find in our families. We find it in our schools. We find it in our own hearts. We find it in our churches. And our mess actually matters. The second ground rule that we put down was that our mess is both internal and external. We find mess, like I just said, outside of ourselves, in the culture, in different environments, in different groupings of people, in other individuals. But we also find our mess inside, right? And the things that we feel, and the things that we think, and the things that we want, and the ways that we experience the world. Because of this, we have, to, we have to know that our mess is just too big for us to adequately address on our own. We can't wrap our hands around it. We can't know how to solve it. Even gathered together in this room of wonderful, intelligent, beautiful, competent people, we cannot fix our own problems. And that's where the good news of the gospel begins to meet us. In recognizing that our mess, our confusion, our disappointment, our hardship, our sin is something that God moves toward in and through Christ and the gospel. He doesn't look away from it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pass over it. He enters into it and adequately addresses it. He knows where we are. He knows what we are like. He knows what we need. And He has provided a solution for us. As we come back together today to the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see one other word picture, one other description of our messiness, of our brokenness, and we're also going to see how God promises to meet us there. All right? 
So we're going to be in Ezekiel 37, and today we're going to start in verse 15. Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 15. Remember, this is God's word for you and for me. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another in one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah, and will make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in the hand, in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them. And they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God." My servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace. That sounds familiar. With them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. As we started off the week together, we saw that our mess was described as uncleanness. And that God would work in and through Jesus Christ our Savior to not simply clean us up a little bit, but to absolutely renew us. To give us a fresh, clean beginning. A fresh, clean, living heart. To literally give us new life. We've also seen that we in our mess have been described described as lost sheep. That we are wandering, we are scattered, we are alone. But God has promised, and He has worked again through Jesus, to find us, to love us, to heal us, to feed us, and to give us rest. Yesterday, anybody remember what we talked about? In Ezekiel, we were compared to dry bones. We are very, very dead in our mess, in our sin, in our desperation, in our disobedience. But God again has promised in and through Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life, to bring us again to new life. Here in Ezekiel 37, what's the picture? It's one of brokenness, one of distance, one of separation. But God promises to bring us together. 
As we start, we're going to start one more time with a story. This is a newer Disney movie called Zootopia. Zootopia. Uh, in this movie, we are introduced at the very beginning to a young, uh, innocent, idealistic rabbit named, anybody know? Judy Hopps. It is Judy's burning desire and greatest passion to serve as a police officer in Zootopia. And so she pursues that dream only to find that her idealism is a bit misplaced and that her shiny view of the world is, well, unrealistic. In the course of the story, she's introduced to someone named Nick Wilde. Nick is a fox. If you know anything about God's creation, rabbits and foxes don't typically get along. In fact, Judy's parents had warned her multiple times about foxes. They had worked to prepare her for encounters with foxes, with pepper spray and a taser. And... But over the course of this movie, we see something beautiful and even miraculous take place. Judy realizes that this fox, this street-smart, realistic fox is in fact her greatest ally. We see two polar opposites come together and accomplish something greater than they ever could have accomplished on their own. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through our time together here in Ezekiel 37. Okay? Let's look again at what our mess actually is. Well, we are broken people. We are broken people. The the people that... Ezekiel is addressing here are incredibly broken. They are politically broken apart. They are even historically broken apart. They are geographically broken apart. There is a lot of distance here. A situation that I think as we we really give careful thought to what's being described will begin to parallel so much of what we experience even though we are removed from their experiences by several thousands of years and many, many miles. As we think about our our relationships, we need to recognize that relationships with others are broken. We've visited that theme several times this week. But recognize what God is saying to these people in particular. He uses a picture of what? What is Ezekiel supposed to hold in his hands? Okay, Two sticks. This was weird to the people of Israel, and it's kind of weird to us. Now, they're not just any sticks. What was Ezekiel supposed to do with the sticks? He was supposed to write on them. Does anyone here know the significance of what he was supposed to write on them? One is supposed to say Judah, and the other one is supposed to say Joseph or Ephraim. What, what is that? You may know. Okay, I heard somebody say it. There were two kingdoms that resulted from from a lot of Israel's history together as a people. After Solomon's reign, Solomon was followed by a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a very wicked man. And the majority of the tribes of Israel, of which there were 12, actually established themselves as a separate nation under a king named Jeroboam. I know that's very confusing. But you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So two tribes in the south became their own sort of independent nation, and ten tribes in the north became their own independent nation. 
as Ezekiel is writing, this is an event that was about 300 years in, in the past. So longer than we have even been a nation, these people have experienced this kind of political and geographic division. Their divisions were deep. They were generational. And so are ours. The reality is that we experience so much of broken relationship in our own lives as well. And we desperately and deeply need the promises that God makes and the work that God actually does in our lives. Think about the kinds of broken relationships we experience and how they parallel what was being described here in Ezekiel 37. Sometimes our separation is simply physical. It's as simple as geography. We are physically distanced from one another. That was true in in the Old Testament here in Ezekiel 37, particularly because you have some of the Jewish nation that's now in Babylon and some that's been left behind in Palestine. Families have been torn apart. Loved ones, friends are now greatly distanced from one another. There is a physical distance here. We know what that's like. My wife often says that the worst effect of the fall is having to say goodbye. We've been here with friends this week. Some of you I have seen before. Some of you have had the privilege of teaching before. I actually don't like saying goodbye to you. Why? Because that's the creation of a physical distance and the recognition that our lives will no longer parallel as they have this week. Some of you know the physical distance that comes as a result of perhaps a move. And and that's part of your mess. That's part of the hurt. That's part of the confusion that you carry. God acknowledges that there is a real physical distance here between these two groups of people and, and a real physical distance that we often experience. It's deeper, though. There is also a racial distancing. And I'll have to do a little more explanation to help you understand this. In in what had happened in Old Testament Israel, the people of the southern tribes, because of what they had done religiously and and because they had had endeavored to kind of preserve themselves racially, they had begun to to have sort of a superiority complex. This was heightened as people were taken to Babylon because some of the Jewish people began to intermarry with some of the Babylonians. And so there's, there's been a racial difference now, an ethnic difference that's opening up in the Old Testament people of God. I'm thankful that in this room we never struggle with any kind of ethnic or racial difference or distance, right? No. Of course not. Just look at the history of our nation. Look at the history of some of our churches. Look at the history of some of our own lives. And we recognize that there is a great deal of distance that we create sometimes and that we experience sometimes. There is a racial difference, a racial brokenness, an ethnic brokenness that we often experience. Some of this is cultural, too. These two different divided nations, Judah and Ephraim, or the south and the north, had become different culturally, different sort of in their religious practices, 
different in the things that they loved and valued, and the way that they spent their time and their energies and their monies. We often do this in our relationships, and we often think that our culture is superior to the cultures of other people. I'll give you an example of this from my own life. I grew up, I often tell people, they say, tell me about yourself, and I'll say, I'm an overeducated victim of the States. I have never lived on less than 10 acres before I moved to Charlotte for seminary, where I lived in an 800 square foot apartment surrounded by thousands of other people. It was scary for me. Um, my sister was the first person, as far as I know, from either side of my family that had ever attended college, let alone graduated from college. So from a cultural perspective, and I'm saying this not to make fun, to tell you what I really genuinely love. I love trucks with big tires, cars with big engines. I love fried food. I love simple Saturday nights, okay? I love going to church on Sunday and having a potluck afterward and not caring what time it is. My dad, his whole life has been in food service. When he came home from work every day, I remember giving him a big hug, and he smelled like french fries because he worked for Hardee's. I loved that. I can't smell french fries without thinking about my dad. That's a different culture than some of you have grown up in. And so often when we look at a different culture, instead of seeing beauty and diversity there, we become judgmental and exclusive, right? Of thinking that somehow because of who we are and what we do, we are in fact better than other people. Maybe because of finances. Maybe because of just traditional practices. I mean, seriously, if I offered some of you guys fried chicken livers right now, I, I grew up eating fried chicken livers. They're weird, but they're good. Liver mush, we can have that conversation later. There's some financial distancing that's taking place. Financial distancing that's taking place. And that, and that goes along with culturally, right? Again, through this process of being divided as a nation and then being divided in captivity, there are the haves and the have-nots. We know so much about that. And so often, we use that distancing, that difference, to create, I am better than you. We, it's weird, too, because it goes both ways. Some of us have great financial... I actually back up. Some of us have parents who have great financial resources. <laughs> and we use that to kind of look down on other people. Because maybe you have the lake house or the nice car or you think I am automatically better than this person, they don't belong. But we also do the flip side. Sometimes we're from less means and we constantly think ill of the people who have a lot of stuff. Is it wrong to have a lot of money? No. Is it morally wrong to be poor? No. In fact, in the Bible we find both. Abraham was filthy rich. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. But what God is showing us and what, what we need to understand about our lives is that so often we experience that distancing and that broken relationship with one another. And the last is one that I just want to bring up about our context. This is not directly taken from Scripture. 
But understand that oftentimes we experience relational brokenness because of ability or lack thereof. High school is one of the places that heightens this. How do I know that? Well, sometimes when maybe somebody's new to school or your parents are asking you about somebody at school, what do you automatically describe them with or as? Their ability. Tell me about Susie. Oh, she's a nurse. I mean, what did you just do? You just said she is intelligent, she is a disciplined academic, and she gets good grades, right? Tell me about Sally. Not you, Sally. Just an imaginary Sally. Tell me about Sally. And you might say, well, she's a jock, right? Or Bobby, he's a jock. What are you saying? You're, you're identifying that person by ability. He runs, she runs, she jumps, she swims, she whatever, right? Again, this is imaginary. This is not really you, Sally. Um, we do this all the time. We divide out relationally around ability or lack thereof. Maybe it's musical ability. Maybe it's electronic ability, right? You're a gamer. And we kind of group ourselves up in these, in these little divisions so often. And those are the people that we're with. Those are the people we think most highly of. Those are the people that approve of us. And so we're naturally divided out into all these different groups of people. And if we're not careful, so often our mess is introduced because we, again, think that we are superior because of it. It's worse than that, though, because our relationship with God is also broken. If you rewind in Israel's history, you'll recognize that, that the division that actually took place was because of rebellion and disobedience on the part, not of one group, but both. Rehoboam was a disobedient king that led his people into idolatry. Jeroboam was a disobedient king that led his people into idolatry. And so really, for the, for the course of the history of these two nations, both are disobedient to the point that God sends discipline via foreign armies that take both into captivity. The reality is that regardless of how they may have been jockeying for position historically, regardless of how they may have been looking down on one another through the course of time, both have been rebellious, both have been disobedient, and both have been sent into captivity. Let's be honest. It's easy to point the finger at, at these people who are long dead in the Old Testament, but we are idolatrous rebellious people. Now we often think that we are better than the Israelites who had golden calves or other gods made out of stone or wood. But let's just keep it real, can we? In our lives we worship things like success. And power and money. Some of you guys are going to college in, in like a month and a half. 
In college, you are going to be told it is all about you and your success, the power that you will wield, and the money that you will earn. People will realistically work to convince you that that is the essence of life. And it becomes our God. Some of us, we, we worship things like sex, or comfort, or distraction, or... And we can keep on going. I, I think if we were really going to try to describe it, or capture this idea, though, our relationship with God is broken, and it so often evidences itself in our lives as 21st century Americans, here's a big phrase, in that we become narcissistic hedonists. What does that mean? It's all about me and anything and everything that makes me feel good. Which means we have incredible freedom to define that as we will. We worship personal pleasure. As we think about our relationships with other people and, the, and just the multifaceted way in which the relationships are broken, as we think about the way our relationship with God is broken and that we are an idolatrous, disobedient people, I want you to think about Christmas time. Um, any of you, uh, are any of you white light people on the Christmas tree? White light people? All right, where are my multicolored light people? Do any of you do both? Okay, there we go. Okay, there we go. See, look, cultural division. Feel free to fight that out later. Um, Rachel and I typically have a, a specific way of, of decorating our Oh, here's another question. Live Christmas tree people. Artificial Christmas tree people. Shame on you. Um, no. Um, I went into a house one time. This is completely uh, free information. They had a Christmas tree closet underneath the stairs. There was a door that was like eight feet tall. They opened it, slid their Christmas tree into it, and forgot about it for 11 months. Fully decorated. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. They literally just like, whoop, pull it out, push it back in. Think about that someday. You know how. Um, so Rachel and I... Rachel and I, when we decorate a Christmas tree, we typically decorate it by putting the lights on first. And then we will hang Christmas balls, multicolored Christmas balls, kind of in the interior of the tree so they catch the light and reflect it over the other ornaments and through the living room. And That's just the way we decorate a tree. Now, if you've spent a lot of time around glass Christmas balls, you'll know that they're actually incredibly fragile. We have hardwood floors, and if one falls off, it, it smashes into a million pieces. My mother tells a story, I don't remember this, but I was in my walker when I was a very small child, and she came around the corner one day and she just heard me cackling. What I was doing is I was taking the Christmas balls off the tree and throwing them against our mantle. <laughs> just, just to watch them smash. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. The way that Ezekiel and the way that God is describing us in our relationships with other people and in our relationships with one another this idea that there are two broken sticks is kind of like a broken Christmas ball. We can't put that back together. You might try some glue, or, but it's, it's just not, 
It's just not going to be right again. I actually thought about bringing a stick in and, and kind of snapping it over my knee and asking somebody to put it back together. It just wouldn't have worked, right? That's the picture here. There is a long, deep, multifaceted separation from God and from others. And we need to understand that that is so often the way our lives look as well. So what is God's solution? What is God going to do? In ways that really, truly blow our minds. And in ways that would have been beyond the imagination of the people who were struggling in captivity and struggling to understand any sense of unity or or togetherness or blessing, God says that He is going to close the distance. We begin to get the good news here in verse 19 because God says that He's going to draw His people together. In verse 19 He says, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph and the tribes of Israel associated with him and I will join it, the stick, with it, the stick of Judah. I will make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. Verse 22, I will make them one nation in the land. In verse 24, we, we learn there's something even better, that his servant David will be king over them, and they all will have one <coughs> shepherd, that sounds Hold on to that. We'll come back to it. God is saying that no matter where you are and no matter what it may be that divides you, whether it's history or geography or culture or twisted religious practice, or God is saying, I am taking all of those who are actually and fully my people, all true Israel, and I am gathering them together. As one nation and one kingdom under one king. What else is God doing? We need to take time here because this is a big, powerful promise. God promises to draw his people to himself. We've talked about so much of our mess being relational. We, we've, we've seen the echoes from the Garden of Eden about the distance that was created when Adam and Eve rejected God. That they ran from Him, that they covered themselves, that they tried to shift the blame. And here in Ezekiel 37, we're promised not only that God will bring us back together with one another, but that God will bring us back together with Himself. He promises it multiple times here. Look at what he's going to do. In verse 23, it says, They will be my people, and I will be their God. Skip down to verse 27. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The end of verse 28. My sanctuary is in their midst forever. God is saying, yes, I see that you were broken apart. I see that you do not relate to one another well because because you are two nations. You are separated. 
But also understand that you are separated from me and all the distance that you experience, all the ways that your mess is reflected in that distance. I am drawing it together. I am drawing you together and I am drawing you to myself. We're going to do a, a little activity together. One that I've done with my own youth group before. But I, I want us to understand the depth and the importance of what God is promising here to Ezekiel 37. So I need somebody in this room to turn to Exodus 6, verse 7. Who wants to volunteer for that? Exodus 6, 7, right back there. All right? How about Jeremiah 30, verse 22? Who wants that one? All right, thank you. Jeremiah 30, 22. Zechariah 8, 8. That's a tricky one to find, but I trust you. Zechariah 8, 8. How about 2 Corinthians 6, 16? Anybody want that one? Thank you. And lastly, or not lastly, Hebrews 8, 10. Who wants that one? Okay, thank you. And last one, Revelation 21, 3. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to read them in that order. Anybody need a refresher of where you were supposed to be? All right, fantastic. Let's go first to Exodus 6, verse 7. Please try to, please try to read it as loud as you can. Okay, what was the promise there? I'm going to take you as my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah 30, 22. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That sounds familiar. How about Zechariah 8, 8? Now bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, of the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Revelation 21.3 I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and I will be God. <clears throat> what did we just do? We just covered the entirety of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, narrative, prophecy, epistle. What is one of God's greatest promises and greatest works for time and eternity? That he will draw his people together to himself. As we think about this unity that God creates, as we think about the way that he closes the distance, as we think about the, the, the unity and the diversity that's present, I want us to think about one of my favorite stories of Lord of the Rings. We talked about a lot of story this week, and that's on purpose, because I think what we need to understand is that in every great story, we appreciate things about it, I think ultimately because they are echoes of what Scripture teaches. In the Lord of the Rings, we are introduced to a very real, very big problem, right? There's a really big bad guy that's made a return. And there's this itty-bitty little thing, a ring, that's at the heart of the problem. It's not this ring, I promise. I won't disappear when I put it on. Um... And so in order to deal with this threat, what do we see happening? 
a diverse group of people are drawn together, right? There are humans, there's dwarf, there's elf, there are hobbits, there's Gandalf, whatever he is. I bet somebody's just like, I can't believe he doesn't know what they're called. (laughs) (laughs) Are you that person? I mean, I know him. Okay. We love that because it's a reflection of what God is doing in our midst as his people, the church. God is drawing a diverse people together from all across the world for the accomplishment of His will and the glory of His own name. As Tolkien writes that story, he wants us to appreciate not just one or two of these characters, but the beauty of what they can accomplish together because of the diversity of their personalities and gifts. What we need to understand is what God is doing in our midst, what God has promised to do in our midst is to not make us all into one kind of person, but to bring us all underneath one kind of kingly authority to really perfect the unity and diversity that God intends. Such that when I, as an overeducated hick from the sticks, live in relationship with you, who may be a, a suburbanite, I don't say, look how much better my life is. I say, wow, how cool your experiences have been. How different that is, but how beautiful that is. When I look at someone as a bald man who has amazingly beautiful curly hair, I don't get to say, I wish I had that, or I'm so much better than you, I don't have to buy hair care products. (laughs) I say, wow, look at the diversity that God has created in his world. When I watch the Olympics, I don't say, I don't know why somebody's dedicated that much time and energy to that. I say, wow, how do you get that high on like a bar? (laughs) That's what God is doing in our midst. It's something to be celebrated. It's something to be leaned into. It's something to long for. As we take note of a few things and as we start to finish up together... Let's recognize one more time that God does all the work of salvation. God doesn't come to these two divided groups of people and say, you know what, I really wish you guys would just get along. Here's three principles that are really going to help you and and kind of fix that problem. God says, listen, I will take my people and draw them together. I will come to them and be their God. I will plant my sanctuary in their midst forever. I will tabernacle myself among them. God is saying He does the work. Remember, you and I cannot accomplish our own salvation. We simply lean in and depend upon the work that God has promised and accomplished. Notice here in Ezekiel 37... There's something actually pretty cool about this because God returns to familiar language that we've heard all throughout the week. God says in verse 24 that he is going to send a king and that all of his people will have one shepherd. He hasn't been talking about sheep here. 
But again, he's calling our minds back to remember you were lost, you were scattered, you were hungry. I will send the shepherd. He talks about cleansing in verse 23. I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Again, his primary focus has not been on uncleanness, but God is calling us back to that earlier picture to say, remember, you are dirty and I will clean you. God says again that there will be, in verse 26, a covenant of peace, an enduring, lasting, sure promise. I think what we're seeing in reality is that all of these pictures of salvation are not meant to be interpreted individually, but to be taken together as one gigantic, enduring promise from God that He will find the lost, that He will cleanse the dirty, that He will mend the broken, that He will accomplish our salvation, and He will address our mess. Also note that God intends to gather his people together under the authority and reign of Jesus Christ. The servant David that's promised in verse 24 is Jesus. That in fact is why the gospel writers go out of their way to connect Jesus to the life of David, to the lineage of David, to help us understand that Jesus is the descendant of David because he is this promised the really beautiful thing is that we understand in passages like Matthew 28 and particularly as we're given a vision of the church gathered together in Revelation chapter 7 we see that God is actually already doing this in the life of the church we are called as God's ambassadors to go to every nation we see gathered around the throne those from every tongue and tribe and people group. And we see very actively and practically in the life of the church that the gospel is going forward to the entire globe, to every culture, to every color, to every socioeconomic bracket. Because God desires to draw His church one more story and we're all done for the week we think about the history of our own nation I think we're struck with, again with the beauty of what God promises and we actually long for something better than we, what we've even experienced in, in the unity and, and the power that is our American nation because boy is it long some of you may have been to New York City before. Some of you may have even been to the Statue of Liberty before. Some of you may have noticed that at the Statue of Liberty, there is a poem by Emma Lazarus called The New Colossus. As I read this to you, I want you to think not simply of our American experience, but of how what is promised here is ultimately something that will be fulfilled by God in Jesus Christ. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, 
with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ye ancient land, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Many of us in this room, we feel tired. We recognize our poverty. We feel as though we long to breathe free. We recognize in our hearts and perhaps in so many of our circumstances that we are homeless and storm-tossed. Know that your hope is in no political power. Know that your hope is certainly not in any self-improvement program. Know that your hope is not to be found in any living human being here presently on earth. Our hope is of heaven and from heaven. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. God can close any distance, no matter how great. He is, and he will continue to do so, for his glory and our good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this week. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look again to your word. We pray that as you continue to gather your church, that you would use us in that effort. We pray, God, that... All of those gathered here today, every young woman and every young man, that we would lean upon you for our salvation, that we would see that your salvation is a work that really blows our minds, that extends beyond our expectations, a salvation that truly addresses our mess. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.